Okay, I'm going to start by warning everybody straight away that this is going to be an incredibly quick whistle-stop tour through children's writing about King Arthur. There are many, many texts on this subject. I do apologize if I miss anybody's favorites out, and please do feel free to bring them up in the questions. What we're going to do over the next half hour is look at the specific presentation of Arthurian literature for children, how it's been seen as both an ideal thing, sorry, I'm losing the mic, an ideal thing for children to read about, but also at times a threatening or a, a troubling thing for children to read about. I'm going to start by telling you how my interest in this area was first sparked, all the way back in 2008 with the launch of a completely awful but also completely interesting TV series. And this was the BBC Merlin starting in 2008. What I noticed when this, when this program first came out was that a lot of people began kicking up the most extraordinary fuss about what they perceived as changes that the TV writers had made to the story. And these were things like rewriting the characters of Arthur and Merlin so that they were people of similar ages, hiring Angel Coolby, who is the woman whose picture you can see there, to play the young Guinevere. And I've collected just a couple of snippets of these comments that people made to read out to you. The first one from The Guardian, I thought it was ghastly. The BBC used to produce TV written by <coughs> smart people who'd actually read the myths, understood their power, and used and reinterpreted them brilliantly. The next comment, I'm sorry to say, but Angel Coolby is really a miscast. Hey, there weren't any black people in medieval Great Britain. Okay, what these tell me, aside from the fact that somebody really needs to revisit their history lessons, we do have evidence of black people in Great Britain in the Middle Ages, what this tells me is that a lot of people have a very strong preconceived idea of how the story ought to go. They also feel very strongly invested, obviously, in the idea that it should not be changed. There is a sense of the Arthurian mythos as something that's quite important to people. And finally, this quotation, which is from the BBC America website, in honor of Merlin reaching BBC America, we've decided to test your knowledge of the Arthurian legend. Answer our trivia questions and see how you would fare in Camelot. So again, this is really interesting. The Arthurian legend. The idea that this is a body of stories that is concrete enough that you can write a trivia quiz about it. Something that becomes quite difficult when you start looking at the original sources and seeing how the Stanzaic Mort disagrees with the alliterative Mort, which disagrees with Geoffrey of Monmouth, which disagrees with Chrétien de Troyes, etc. So what all of these snippets seem to have in common is an investment in the idea of a single canonical version of the story, the Arthurian legend that these TV writers are misrepresenting. And I found this really interesting. Actually, I still do. What I found by going through representations of Arthurian writing from the late Middle Ages to the present day is that actually the story has proved extremely malleable. And I'd like to show you some examples of that and to suggest that, to some extent, the history of Arthurian rewritings is, to some extent, a history of change. So let's start with Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, written between 1469 and 1470, and printed famously by William Caxton in 1485. And I want to stress here that there is a whole world of Arthurian writing before Mallory, and that it existed in all sorts of languages, French, absolutely, but also Latin, German, Older Scots, English. However, I'm taking Mallory today as my inception point, both because he forms the source text for a lot of later children's rewritings, and because it seems that Mallory is often kind of a touchstone that people keep returning to when considering this rather nebulous idea of the Arthurian legend. 
So I think it's worth noting to start with, as some people in this room I think are already very well aware, that there's an entire body of scholarship devoted to looking at the changes that Mallory himself makes to his source materials. That uh, among other things, he dramatically increases the attention and prestige that's focused on Lancelot throughout the text. When he's doing the Grail book, he minimizes the religious and didactic elements that he finds in his sources. And he introduces the story of Gareth the Kitchen Boy, which has very few precedents before Mallory. Then again, of course, one of the things that Caxton the printer, and you can see his print there on the right-hand side of the screen, one of the first things that Caxton does when he gets hold of Mallory's work is to start making changes of his own. When the Winchester manuscript, which is the, the colored image that you can see on the left-hand side, was discovered in a box in a school library in the 1930s, one of the first things that scholars realized was that it was actually very, very different to the Caxton print, which was all that had been known of Mallory up until then. Neither of these witnesses is actually Mallory's handwritten copy. However, it does seem very clear to us that Caxton made some significant changes of his own, including altering the original book and chapter divisions and cutting a great deal of Mallory's book two, which deals with Arthur's adventures in Europe. Caxton also, interestingly, very much puts his own spin on what, for want of a better word, I'm going to have to call the marketing of the book. So there is nothing in either Mallory's book or Caxton's print to suggest that either of these texts are deliberately aimed at children. However, Andrew Lynch has recently made a very interesting case for the idea that they may have been reading it anyway. This is actually, I think, one of the real difficulties of doing this type of research into early writing for children. Barring obvious evidence like names written in books, it's often very difficult for us to say for certain whether or not children may have read something or have heard it read aloud to them, either specifically as children or as part of a general household audience. However, what Caxton does very emphatically stress to his readers is that this is a book that contains the potential for self-improvement. This is his preface to Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which I've given you first. He says, I, according to my copy, have downset it in print to the intent that noble men may see and learn the noble acts of chivalry. Do after the good and leave the evil, and it shall bring you to good fame and renown. Again, uh, the year before, in his epilogue to Ramon Lowell's book of knighthood and chivalry, he refers to reading Arthurian literature as an opportunity for self-development. He says, O oh, you knights of England, where is the custom and usage of noble chivalry that was used in those days? What do you do now but go to the baths and play at dice? Leave this. Leave it and read the noble volumes of the Holy Grail of Lancelot, of Galahad and Sir Tristram. There shall you see manhood, courtesy and gentilesse. Alas, what do you do but sleep and take ease and are all disordered from chivalry? So the message here is very clear that by reading this book, and perhaps even more importantly for Caxton, by buying this book, you can elevate your status. You can make yourself into a more prestigious person. He suggests you do need to have some judgment in order to be able to do after the good and leave the evil. But if you're able to do that, you can have manhood, courtesy, and gentilesse, nobility. So this view of Mallory as self-improvement is probably quite close to the one that most of us grew up with around the idea of Arthurian literature as a path to good conduct, as a set of uplifting moral stories about good knights. However, one very interesting thing is that in the century after Caxton was printing, there are people around who definitely don't think that that's the case. This is Roger Ascombe, who is the tutor to the young Queen Elizabeth I, and he writes a book called The Schoolmaster, which is all about how to raise intelligent, literate adults. And this is what he has to say about Mallory. He says, Mort Arthur, the whole pleasure of which book, standeth in two special points, in open manslaughter and in bold bawdry. 
What toys the daily reading of such a book may work in the will of a young gentleman or a young mage that liveth wealthily and idly, wise men can judge and honest men do pity. So a couple of really interesting things to note here. One is that while some of the later Arthurian adaptations, like the Victorian ones we'll hear about in a minute, tend to worry about the sex in the books but not the violence, Ascham is clearly concerned about both of them. The open manslaughter and the bold boardiness are both to be avoided. It's also interesting, I think, that both boy and girl readers are implicated here. So concerns about children reading Arthurian literature have yet to become heavily gendered. Finally, Ascham also relegates the book to the period of papistry, suggesting that the Reformation is coming into play here. After the rise of Protestantism, the image of Merlin and his magic, Arthur's dealings with the supernatural and the Holy Grail all become significantly more problematic and more problematic as things to give to children. So in line with Ascham's condemnation, we do see something of a decline in Arthur's popularity post-Reformation. So we get Arthurian imagery being included in the Fairy Queen, but it tends to take something of a back seat. And while Milton at one point considers writing an Arthurian epic, he eventually decides to spend the time on Paradise Lost instead. And the upshot of this is that this rather handsome edition is the last of Mallory to be printed for a very long time. And I do urge you to go into the exhibition room and have a look at it on display afterwards, because it's a very beautiful, very odd-looking little thing. And the illustrations alone, you can see there Arthur sitting on the round table itself with his knights surrounding him, might make us inclined towards perceiving this as a book that children might enjoy. However, we also have some first-hand evidence that children were reading it. The poet Robert Southey talks about his own experiences as a child reading Mallory in the 1780s. And he says, when I was a schoolboy, I possessed a wretchedly imperfect copy. And there was no book except The Fairy Queen, which I perused so often, or with such deep contentment. And Southey himself, of course, goes on to produce one of the first 19th century editions, which came out in 1817. Here we have the history of the Nine Worthies of the World, Nathaniel Crouch, published in 1687. And as a Nine Worthies book, this is not an edition of Mallory, but it does concern Arthur. The purpose of this volume is basically role modeling. A nine worthies book typically gives three examples, oh, sorry, nine examples of worthy men throughout history, three pagans, three Jewish men, and three Christians, who the reader, again, potentially a child, is meant to internalize and emulate. And again, we can see here the large illustrations, which may potentially point to a child readership, and also the rhyming diction, Arthur the great and worthy British king, glory and victory to his realm did bring, etc. What seems to be very important for Crouch here is Arthur's kingship. So both in that rhyming text and in the prose that follows it, he downplays the elements of magic and mystery, but he argues that Arthur's status as a British worthy and the good that he did for Britain and British people should outweigh the, the more fabulous magic elements of the story as complained about by people like Ascham. So Crouch doesn't deny that Arthur's story is violent and supernatural but he emphasizes that the king's honor and the fact of his Britishness should balance out the more problematic elements of the story. So we can see something of a minor Arthurian rehabilitation beginning to go on here. So taking the survival of Arthuriana off in a completely different direction, this rather wonderful thing is a chapbook, literally a cheap book. It's a sort of forerunner to supermarket picture books that you might see nowadays. As you can see, it is indeed quite cheaply and roughly printed, but I hope you can make out the fact that we have Tom Thumb here sitting on his full-sized horse. So the book itself is also quite small. It's basically designed to be an inexpensive item that can be given to children without too much risk. 
And in the early modern period, the folk hero Tom Thumb becomes intertwined with Arthur's court. The Arthurian world basically becomes a setting for his adventures. It's a sort of fantasy land where all sorts of exotic and strange things can happen. And becoming one of Arthur's knights is often presented as the reward that Tom receives at the end of all his adventures. So as you can hopefully see there on the right-hand side, again, the British angle is coming out. The subtitle tells us that this is the story of the little knight who lived in King Arthur's time and is famous in the court of Great Britain. So this is another Arthurian reinvention, this time using the traditional story as the setting for another, even more fantastical adventure. Tom Thumb aside, I've had difficulty pinning down much more in the way of specifically child-directed Arthurian writing until the extraordinary flowering of Arthurian interest that basically comes flooding into English literature and culture in the wake of Tennyson, who himself is jumping off the work of the early 19th century antiquaries, but that is another lecture all by itself. So when I mention Tennyson, probably one of the first things that comes popping into a lot of people's heads is the artwork created by the pre-Raphaelite movement, and there are some very good reasons for you to be making that connection. On the left-hand side there, we have an image from a book known as the Mox and Tennyson. This is a deluxe edition printed in the late 1850s of all the poems that Tennyson had written up until that point, published by Edward Moxon. And what he did was commission a number of young and emerging artists to create illustrations for this deluxe edition, one of whom was the young or youngish William Holman Hunt. And this is on the left-hand side there, the illustration for the famous poem, The Lady of Shalott. And more than 35 years later, as you can see from the right-hand image there, Hunt is still working on the motifs from Tennyson's Arthurian poem. The lady appears in this much later full-color painting, but with many of the picture's original elements, including that fantastic claustrophobic effect created by her, her trapping inside the tapestry still being kept intact. And so the interplay between Tennyson's Arthurian poems and the pre-Raphaelites is hugely significant. Just as a quick example, if you're able to drop into the Oxford Union, you can see the unfortunately rather faded mural that was created between 1857 and 1859 by a team of the pre-Raphaelites, including Rossetti, William Morris, Edward Byrne-Jones, and of course the influence of both Tennyson and the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood on other writers and artists is still going on to this very day, as hopefully I'll get time to tell you before the end of the lecture today. So again, we know from anecdotal evidence that Tennyson is definitely being given to children to read. His characters and lines from his poems occasionally make guest appearances in a number of other children's books. In many ways, Tennyson's idealized portrait of chivalry, of what it means to be a knight, this idea of live pure, speak true, right wrong, follow the king, very much lends itself to being presented as a role model for a young man who is embedded in that Victorian purity culture. However, as the century moves on, concerns begin to arise about the suitability of giving this Arthurian literature to young people without guidance. In addition to anxieties about the sexual elements of the story, people begin to argue that Mallory's language needs to be modernized, that in order to give young people access to these noble knightly adventures that will do them so much good, the language needs to be rewritten and simplified. So two of the most famous redactors and adapters of this period are Sidney Lanier, who created the very famous Boys King Arthur in 1880, which is still in print, and Howard Pyle, whose books about King Arthur and Robin Hood, created for the American children's market, were hugely influential on 20th century pop culture, 20th century medievalism, and particularly the, the portrayal of Robin Hood on film. Before Lanier, though, the first official adaptation 
that identified itself as being for children was actually published by James Knowles in 1862. And this is what Knowles has to say about the importance of what he's doing. He says, the story of King Arthur will never die while there are English men to study and English boys to devour its tales of adventure and daring and magic and conquest. King Arthur was to our forefathers what and more than what Robinson Crusoe and the Arabian Nights are to the present generation. They feasted on its legend for centuries and never grew tired of the grand chivalry of the blameless king. So here, Knowles is very obviously riding on the coattails of the Tennyson Arthurian revival, and he actually dedicates this book to Tennyson rather sweetly. He also equates the book with children's literature that is currently popular, what seems like quite a shrewd marketing technique linking it to Robinson Crusoe. And he also, again, deliberately taps into national identity. This is something for English men and English boys to consume. At this point, interestingly, Arthurianism also seems to become increasingly gender-specific. It's for boys and men, and we'll, of course we'll see this even more when Lanier publishes The Boys, King Arthur. The emphasis on Arthur as blameless is also particularly interesting. It's an obvious borrowing from Tennyson's idea of the blameless king, but it's also reframing this as good moral literature that's okay to give to children. Unlike Caxton's idea of good behavior in the 1480s, however, this isn't about winning good fortune and renown. It's not about becoming more prestigious. It's about becoming more holy, becoming a better person. And in many of these adaptations, it's particularly obvious in Pyle, the fighting that the heroes are called upon to do often becomes a metaphor for fighting one's own besetting sins and temptations, for winning victory over one's bad nature. And as the 19th century progresses, I've found increasing Baudelarization in Arthurian children's books, authors often removing or censoring the parts of the text that are concerned with adultery in particular, until we arrive at this perfect, idealized Edwardian vision of Camelot. And one of the most extreme examples is Waldo Cutler, whose quotation I've given you there, who promises that his edition will cut out what could be so crude in taste and morals as to seem unworthy of the really high-minded author who lived 500 years ago, effectively suggesting that he's cut out the bits of Mallory that are unworthy of Mallory himself. So this Edwardian idealization of Camelot, I think, arguably reaches its absolute high point in Robert Baden-Powell's scouting handbooks. And I'm always just struck by the contrast between those two images. There's an awful lot more to be said about Arthurianism and the early scouting movement, so much that I'll be going into this a lot more in the second lecture that I'm giving for this series later in June. But I think it's enough to know here that from the very beginning in his first handbook, Scouting for Boys, which was published in 1908, Baden-Powell explicitly connects King Arthur with scouting. He goes on in later volumes to argue that Arthur was the founder of British scouts, and to equate the promise that's taken by the Boy Scouts with the Pentecostal oath that's taken by Mallory's Knights. Now, Young Knights of the Empire is also quite a significant title there. One of Baden-Powell's objectives in founding the scouting movement was to create a body of young men, both in the UK and in Commonwealth countries, so New Zealand, Canada, Australia, who would be capable of defending and maintaining the empire. And this imperial connection also begins to come through in various other Victorian and Edwardian Arthuriads and medieval literature for children. Baden-Powell also frequently links Arthur with St. George. And this book cover, as you can see, which was published during World War I, makes very clear the cultural link between the young scout, who is encouraged to transition as smoothly as possible into the young soldier, and the figure of the knight here containing that dragon, who is very much intended to remind us of St. George. 
The image on the right, on the other hand, there really speaks for itself. This is illustrating the moment of disaster at the end of the text, the Battle of Camlan, when Mordred and Arthur bring about one another's mutual destruction. And this is from an adaptation of Mallory by Alfred Pollard, illustrated by Arthur Rackham, brought out in 1917. Again, it seems to have been marketed towards children, but probably those at the upper end of the book buying scale. But I think it's almost impossible to look at that image without thinking of what was going on at the time it was created. And this image, I think, really drives home the fact that after World War I is over, we see a major change in the presentation of Arthurian literature for children, and indeed in the presentation of Arthurian literature for everybody. Publishers do continue to put out reprints of Lanier and Pyle. They're still doing that today. We also get smaller, cheaper adaptations. The boys' own annuals will continue to run Arthurian stories. But a major blow has been delivered to this old idea of presenting virtue and morality and good conduct through the idea of fighting, which before the war had worked perfectly well for writers as diverse as Tennyson and Baden-Powell. As we'll see in a moment, the issue of empire too also becomes much more vexed. So the author T.H. White, in a letter to one of his friends, says that he was bored one day while living in an isolated gamekeeper's cottage. And what he decided to do to entertain himself was to get out an old copy of Mallory that he'd owned as a Cambridge student in the 1920s. And he was astonished, he said, to discover that the thing was a perfect tragedy, with a beginning, a middle, and an end implicit in the beginning. And he set out writing his own version of the story. And the result was this extraordinary set of books comprising The Sword and the Stone, The Witch in the Wood, also known as The Queen of Air and Darkness, The Ill-Made Knight, The Candle in the Wind, and The Book of Merlin. Several of these were heavily revised and republished. The Book of Merlin wasn't actually published until after White's death. Now, it should be noted that talking about these books as children's literature is somewhat vexed. Some of them are much more child-friendly than others. The Sword in the Stone, which White describes as a preface to Mallory, was sweet and cuddly enough to be made into a Disney film in 1963. Its sequel, which talks about the traumatic childhood of the Orkney brothers, includes dark magic, child abuse, neglect, and animal torture. Later books also deal with sexual infidelity, sadomasochism, and the evil that White perceives as inherent in the human soul. What's particularly interesting, though, is White's reorienting of Arthur's emotional trajectory in line with his own position as a pacifist, writing in the lead up to and during World War II. White effectively creates what may very well be the world's first pacifist and anti-imperialist Arthuriad. So unlike Victorian and Edwardian children's authors, the ultimate goal in T.H. White's books is not to win the grail, it's not to achieve dominance over empire, it's to ensure that what Merlin the Wizard calls might is not allowed to dominate over right. This is the lesson that Merlin, who White in many ways presents as a kind of fantasy Oxbridge tutor, seeks to impart to the young Arthur in The Sword and the Stone. And it's the issue that underpins Arthur's struggles for the rest of his life. Now, I've given you one quotation on the screen there, but I'm actually going to read out something different. This is a short excerpt from The Book of Merlin, which is the final book in the series. And here we see the elderly Arthur on the eve of the final Battle of Camlan, knowing that he's about to die knowing that he's failed in his quest to make peace. All the beauty of his humans came upon him instead of their horribleness. He saw the vast army of martyrs who were his witnesses, young men who had gone out, even in the first joy of marriage, to be killed on dirty battlefields like Bedegrain for other men's beliefs, but who had gone out voluntarily, but who had gone because they thought it was right, but who had gone although they hated it, they had been ignorant young men, perhaps, 
and the things which they died for had been useless, but their ignorance had been innocent. They had done something horribly difficult in their ignorant innocence, which was not for themselves. He saw suddenly all the people who had accepted sacrifice, millions of crusaders, generally stupid, who had been butchered for their stupidity, but who had meant well. Now, to me, it's really difficult to see how that could have been written at any other point in history. White's Arthurian world is intimately bound up in the failure of ideology that had led to the terrible situation in the 1940s, to what seemed, I think, to him like an inescapable repetition of the earlier senseless loss of life. Yet he also very obviously uses Arthurian myth to work through the grief and horror that he obviously feels, to find some kind of peace and dignity in the idea that human beings do mean well despite their obvious and glaring failures and deficiencies. So the shadow of World War II, I think, continues to hang over some of the children's Arthurian writing that's produced in the immediate post-war period. Roger Lancelin Green, who uh, interestingly is one of the first writers to take advantage of the discovery of the Winchester manuscripts, somewhat pleasingly reproduces some of Eugene Vinever, who is the editor of the Winchester manuscripts, ideas, particularly this idea about Mallory's text as being made up of separate stories rather than a single overarching narrative. So it's very interesting to see that being incorporated into writing for children. Green also very tellingly focuses strongly on Arthur as a figure in opposition to the Saxons. And he talks about the Saxons as people who could never be content with their savage, unfruitful homes in Germany, but instead insist on stealing across the North Sea in their long ships to kill or drive out Britons and settle in their homes which is a pretty telling recasting of the story in 1953, I think. Similarly, Susan Cooper, who doesn't write a straight Arthurian retelling, but instead mixes Arthurian elements with Welsh mythology in the Dark is Rising series, acknowledges that the very binary struggle between the forces of dark and light in her books is inspired in part by the experience of having been a child during the war. She says that the experience of having bombs dropped on your head leads to a very strong sense of them and us. And I think that sense of them and us is very, very clear in her books. And finally, in The Weird Stone of Brisingamon, published in 1960, Alan Garner also uses this technique of taking Arthurian elements and mixing them with other mythology. In his case, both images from the Norse tradition and traditional Cheshire legend. And here we can see, and I think it's also in the exhibition room for you to check out if you like, a very interesting piece of calligraphy, which was among Mr. Garner's working notes for the book. And while the most obvious Arthurian element in the text, those uh, sleeping knights beneath the hill, who will return when England shall be in direst peril, is based on a piece of traditional local Cheshire folklore, we can also see some clear influences from Mallory coming through. Here we can see Mr. Garner has copied out some elements of both Caxton's epigraph and Mallory's conclusion, together with a slightly adapted version of what is given as Arthur's tomb inscription. So again, this influence is coming through and being mixed with other elements to make that mythological world that Garner gives us. Finally, the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st has seen an explosion in the popularity of Arthurian retellings. These are only a couple of quick examples. I could give another lecture on all of them. But what does emerge, I think, is a particularly intriguing emphasis on multiple perspectives, on revisiting the story and on privileging previously marginalized characters, especially women. And Peter Dickinson's Merlin Dreams is a very interesting example of that. It's concerned with the idea of multiple perspectives, with the correction of misunderstandings, and it quite sympathy, sympathetically rewrites the character of Nimue, who's the damsel of the lake, who traditionally 
rather callously places Merlin in a hole in the earth and goes away and leaves him there forever. He rewrites this as a collaborative moment, as something that she's doing with Merlin's blessing and permission, rather than it being a malicious act. Also from the 1980s, two books that I didn't have room to include on the slide are Mary Stewart's The Wicked Day and Nancy Springer's I Am Mordred. And both of these perform a similar reworking, moving from the perspective of the alleged villain of the piece, for, for Mordred, who is Arthur's incestuous nephew and son. Um, amusingly, Meg Cabot's Avalon High resets the story in a modern-day American high school. It's great. But it does also present a genuine struggle with the question of destiny with whether predestination in the form of the traditional outcome of the Arthurian story can be overcome by the book's modern characters who are supposed to be reenacting it. Intriguingly, this book also centers Ellie Harrison, who is the girl who is initially set up to correspond to Elaine of Astolat, but is later revealed to be the Lady of the Lake. And in a, a nice moment of intertextuality, it also prefaces each chapter with a quote from Tennyson. And finally, Reeves, significantly titled here, Lies, Arthur, which uh, rather tongue-in-cheek claims to give us the truth behind the story, presents Arthur as a British thug, Guinevere as a victim, and Merlin as a somewhat unsettling 6th century spin doctor figure. And Reeve explains that the story, as we know it, is actually the result of the fabrications that Merlin has made up and spread around the story. So I think what we see here is that Arthurian rewritings have changed dramatically over time. And that when we talk about these rewritings for children, they often give us some really fascinating insights into the experience of being a child reader and into adult concerns about what is and is not appropriate for children to be given to read. Arthurian stories have been presented as sources of good conduct from Caxton onwards, but dissenting voices such as Askins have also argued that they're unsuitable for young readers while texts such as Crouch's Nine Worthies and the Tom Thumbchat books have attempted to take elements from them and partially rehabilitate them. In the mid-19th century, Tennyson's poems and an increasing population of Baudelaireized Arthurian stories presented knighthood as a glamorous means of grasping idealized Christian behavior, and increasingly into the Edwardian period, this glamour was also associated with imperialism. This was stopped short, of course, by World War I, while in the 1930s and 40s, T.H. White used Arthurianism as a way of thinking through the catastrophe of global warfare. Later in the 20th century, we see Lancelin Green and Cooper using Arthurian literature as a way of framing the world as, through conflicts between dark and light, between them and us. But later reimaginings from the perspective of Mordred and Nimue suggest that any them is potentially also an us, that there are two sides to every story. So ultimately, I think what we see here is that it's more difficult, perhaps, than the BBC America quizmakers would have us believe, to simply know the Arthurian legend. Perhaps what we really want to do is be aware that there are, and always have been, multiple Arthurian legends, and to hope that, whether brilliantly or otherwise, we'll go on reinterpreting them in the future.